Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim and I'm the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe and your host for this week's podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Ali Milani, who's Labour's parliamentary candidate um, for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, I believe. He's planning to take on Boris Johnson at the next general election. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson obviously needs no introduction, the former foreign secretary. And I think it's a a, a fascinating um, battle that's going to take place considering the fact that Ali is, is of, of Muslim background, immigrant background as well. Um, and, and that's something that the media have kind of focused on um, when talking to him. And, and in the course of the conversation, I wanted to kind of address that. I think that's one of the first things we spoke about was the way that he's been portrayed. Like in the Metro in particular, the headline um, caught my attention, um, painting him as a Muslim immigrant. Um, but needless to say, I think just having someone from within the Muslim community um, coming, against, coming up against Boris Johnson as someone who, in my opinion, has um, made questionable decisions and, and, and made comments that were in bad taste, I think, to be polite, I guess. Um, I think I'm a little less polite when it comes to actually um, talking to, in a conversation with Ali, but I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit more reserved now. But... Ali's been through a lot um, in terms of his, his political career and we spoke about, in the course of the conversation, issues of anti-Semitism or accusations of anti-Semitism that he's faced, faced in the past um, and he was very open and honest with me about that, which I, I thought was interesting, as well as um, how he perceives or how, how he reacts to, uh, I guess, the media attention that his campaign gets, but focusing a lot more around the whole Muslim element um, and I wanted to also, I guess, talk to him about what were the issues that were important to him beyond that token uh, Muslim immigrant thing that, that people like playing on. Um, yeah, he, he was very open with me and we had a very fascinating conversation, um, which I hope you'll enjoy. So here you go. Assalamu alaikum, Ali. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, so I guess for, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you summarize what you've been doing the last few months? Um, well, uh, I guess the, the headline piece, I'm the, I, I'm the parliamentary candidate uh, going up against Boris Johnson in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. So I'm the Labour Party prospective parliamentary candidate. Uh, I'm also a councillor in Heathrow Villages. So uh, I'm the youngest councillor in Hillingdon Council. Um, I'm the Vice President of the National Union of Students, so um, that's one of the full-time national representatives of 7 million students. Uh, And I guess over the last couple of months, I have been uh, taking on Boris Johnson in the media, locally, on the doorstep, in the community. Um, And so it's been quite an experience. Um, But that's what we've been up to. Uh, And I guess guess the press have been interested and we've picked up quite a lot of attention. Yeah. but for us, it's it's been one day to the next of how, how, how can we challenge Boris Johnson, both in the national airways and the political narrative of the country, but also at a local level as far as what our community needs. I think um, I want to start by talking about the press. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, we actually met last week um, at an event, Mendua had launched a publication, Facts and Figures, about the British Muslim community, which is a very helpful kind of 
handbook for people in education, the media and everywhere. Yeah. Um, and we were both kind of speaking on different panels there. What was interesting is before I got there, I had read an article about you. Or in fact, I didn't read an article about you. I looked at a headline about you and it annoyed me enough not to want to read the article. Yeah. Um, and that so was the Muslim part or the immigrant part? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the Muslim part I'm okay with. It, it, was, it was the Metro um, yeah. had done a piece and I think uh, the title was uh, The Muslim Immigrant Ready to Beat, in inverted commas, Boris Johnson at the polls. Yeah. Um, and when I came up to you at the event, the first thing I said to you was I saw an article about you and I, it annoyed me. And I cut you off and I said, I bet it was the headline. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you knew, and, and I was quite happy first, I guess, that you knew exactly what I was talking about yeah. and that you'd also identified that. But... How, I mean, everything about your story, when, when with regards to you running to be an MP, mm-hmm. there's always, it always comes up that you're an immigrant, you're from Iran, you're this, that, whatever. How, how does that make you feel? Um, you know what, I think, look, there's a certain element of it that I understand. It, it is a remarkable story because it's Boris Johnson. Uh, and so early on, um, when I first got selected, there was a huge amount of, isn't this interesting? Isn't this a remarkable story? Doesn't this add to the public narrative that we've got a young Muslim immigrant going up against Boris Johnson? So to begin with, I understood the the angle of the story. I understood, and I thought it was actually quite helpful mm. to begin with, because I thought if we can set this up to which we can challenge some of uh, the public discourse around Muslims, some of the public discourse about migration, um, and um, some of the uh, responsibilities of public servants and public figures, uh, then it can only be a good thing. So I don't mind being labelled as this thing for now, as long as I'm given the public airspace to challenge some of the Islamophobia, some of the racism, but also some of the wider issues that that, that, that society needs. But, sorry, but what the, the problem, and the reason I knew what you were talking about when you came, uh, approached me at the event was that the press and the media either refuse to or have been unable to move beyond that narrative. For me, standing as a prospective parliamentary candidate as a future MP in Oxford and South Reislip isn't about my Muslimness or about my immigrantness. It's about healthcare, it's about education, it's about public services, it's about workers' rights and migration and foreign policy and all these kind of things. And so what I find remarkable is I'm a one of the youngest councillors in London I'm a national vice president for the National Union Students and have been for two years. Uh, I've been an activist in the Labour Party and more broadly for well, six, seven years now. I'm more than a Muslim immigrant. <laughs> mm. uh, and that's the bit that the press, I mean, for them, I think a lot of it is laziness. Um, a lot of it is just sensationalism and clicks, part of the wider problem in the press. So but what's annoyed me most recently is... It's not just that. I mean, if you read the Metro article, yeah. I speak very, very little yeah. about my own story because yeah, I, yeah. I don't think... I mean, yes, it's a remarkable story and yes, I think I'm providing something different, but it's not a, just it's not about my personal story versus Boris's story. It's, it's about the status of the country and the part he's played in that. The thing is, I feel like... I've come across your name a couple of times when you got elected as councillor a couple of years back, I think it was. Yeah, a year ago. A a year ago. uh, It was doing the rounds and like Muslim Twitter and generally like in the community. um, There was an anti-Semitism round. Yeah. And now this. Yeah. And I feel like all of those circumstances, you were only 
I, you, you only came to my attention, maybe it's my fault that I'm in the wrong circles, but you only came to my attention, or even the media's wider attention, because you were a Muslim or an immigrant or whatever. Yeah. And, and that, that tokenism is what, is what really frustrates me. That obviously for us, we're a niche platform. We're the Muslim vibe targeted towards the Muslim community. Our audience is Muslim. We yeah. produce content for Muslims. Yeah. So naturally, we're going to talk about Islam. We're going to talk about all of these yeah. things. But when you're trying to be a politician, when you're out there in politics, working with the National um, Union of Students, and, and I've spoken to Mali on this podcast as well. Yeah. And um, she reflected back on her time as president. And, and uh, again, I remember the onslaught she got in the media. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just horrible that I, I think as Muslims trying to break beyond that um, that 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 tokenism yeah. and that label of oh yeah the Muslim doing this now we'll paint our story that way I'm sure yeah. but that's because we're talking to a Muslim audience I'm trying to show Muslims that we can engage in politics we can do it on our terms we can go up against the likes of Boris Johnson yeah I mean, the, the, the trouble is it's an inability by the media to move beyond that piece of identity yeah. Right? Uh, and I guess it's a commentary on the wider society, what wider society. But I remember reading, um, not an endorsement of, but reading Barack Obama's Audacity of Hope book, and in it he is very, very aware of the fact that he needs to move beyond being the black politician, the, the yeah. first black editor of the Harvard Law Review, or the first black president, which he wasn't at the time of writing it. He was very, very aware of having to move beyond that. And for me, I think now. I, I certainly do see myself as having a certain level of responsibility to the Muslim community in this country mm. because of the moment that we are in um, and and, the, and some of the difficulties and opportunities that Muslims find themselves in current society. But I keep having to re-establish, and I said this to the journalist at the time, my vision for this country, my belief, my values for this country are broader than my identity. Um, and so when I stand, when my name goes on that ballot, it's about every single member. And actually Islam teaches us this about service, but it's about everybody in that community. So all we can do is kind of trudge on and try and, and try and pivot the conversation to actually some of the difficulties and the challenges that we're trying to meet in the country. Mm. But there does seem to be this, this resistance to... Muslims talking about things beyond their own personal Muslimness. So the press, for example, rarely ever ring my phone unless it's about Finsbury Park or Christchurch. No one wants to know what you think about Brexit. For no example. one wants to know what I think about Brexit, which for now is a good thing. But, <laughs> I won't um, ask, don't worry. But for, like, for example, the, this knife crime round, right? I grew yeah. up in a really urban area of London where knife, knife crime, for me, was a part of daily life. It wasn't an extraordinary thing. It was just, it was life and, and you know, we had knives pulled on us, we lost members of our school and our friends, but it's in community. No one's talking to me about that. Um, and so, you know, one thing that, that we are quite keen on in my campaign is, is, is to talk about issues, talk about things that affect people, not just personal identity. Um, and it's really, it genuinely is not about me. And this is the, the, the thing that you learn when you get on the campaign trail. The more you talk to people, the more I realise that, that this, isn't, this isn't about Ali Milani and Ali Milani versus... Ali Milani versus Boris Johnson is part of a wider political discussion in this country. And I think that's how it should be framed. Um, so I'm, I'm quite keen for, for us to, to 
to talk about some of these issues that you're raising. Yeah. Uh, but but look, I'm I'm very very aware of the that I am offering something different, and that there is value in having that conversation. I mean, look, when we beat him, it will be a remarkable story, right? And I think it will be a a a a sea change in in terms of the the public narrative, um, in that we can defeat um, such divisive rhetoric and divisive politics, really. Yeah. coming from Boris, but it's not that's not just on the immigrant and Muslim. List. Can, can we talk about Boris actually? Um, yeah. Because I, I, I'll tell you my own personal kind of feelings, beliefs, and thoughts. And then you can give me a more political... <laughs> you restrain yourself, I'm sure, a bit more than I might. But um, So, I mean, going back to the whole niqab comments that he made in... in uh, I think, was it the Times, the Telegraph? Telegraph, you're Telegraph. right. 250k just for an article, that's quite nice. That's not... You, well, that's, you're, you're shaping up for that one, right? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be off with the Telegraph. <laughs> so anyway, he, he, made, he made the comments um, comparing Nikabis to letterboxes. Mm. Um, and I think he made some other derogatory comments as well. Um, I was actually approached by BBC to talk to, I think, Vanessa Feltz or someone on BBC Radio London. I, I can't remember when. It was, it was early morning. I was tired, but yeah. anyway, I had to, had to do it. Um, and and I remember discussing with her and basically saying that I felt that it was like a, a dog whistle um, to the far right. And, and you know, we've just seen that uh, Tommy Robinson has launched his MEP campaign and, and we're seeing that kind of far right, I don't want to call them activists, but like bigots are now entering the kind of uh, mainstream political framework in, in whatever way, shape or form they can. Um, and that's slowly, I think, going to creep in and we'll probably see a far-right party coming up and gaining some prominence and, you know, beyond the kind of the joke that is Nigel Farage and his kind of clan. But I felt like he was positioning himself. And, for example, he had that haircut before the the yeah. vote um, on, I think it was the, the vote of no confidence against Theresa May. Yeah. Like, he, he, he has these very subtle and sly moves where you know this guy is shaping up and you know that there's a lot of thought going behind what he's doing to prepare himself to potentially become the next prime minister. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite a, a humble, good-looking young guy. Well, I think people would like me to have a few more haircuts, but I get what <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fine. You, yeah. I, I mean, me and you kind of share the same philosophy yeah. when it comes to haircuts. Uh, but, and, and obviously you mentioned when you beat Boris earlier. So there's obviously that confidence that you can do this. But... I wonder, and this, this almost sounds like a silly question, but like, are you aware of the task ahead of you? Um, more and more so every day. Yeah. Um, let me just comment on that first, though. Okay. He's very bad at it. That's at the what? only thing I was, at, at what I'd say. He's not very good at... Because if you look at the polling that he's got internally in the party, mm. he's pretty much in the lead, but only on like 25%. Yeah. And for someone who has been pulling strings and setting things up to eventually lead to his premiership now it may still happen yeah. uh, just because of the disarray in the, in the, in the, in the Conservative Party mm. but um, if you think of just after Brexit when he was positioning himself and then he pulled back um, and the fact that everybody is aware that Boris is scheming and playing these games and playing people up against each other I don't think he's very good at it because if he was very good at it, we wouldn't be having this conversation about how he's scheming. If he, were, he was very good at it, he'd probably... You wouldn't even know what's You wouldn't even know, but yeah. he'd probably already be Prime Minister. That's probably the weakest front bench in Cabinet that, that, that you've mm. seen. I mean, even when his resignation as Foreign Secretary, it was only because David Davis resigned and then he had to do something to 
um, to, you know, uh, overshadow um, David Davis. But in regards to your question as to whether I see the task ahead of me, I see the task ahead of me in two folds, in two different lenses. One is when I go to Hillingdon Hospital, which is my local hospital um, for needs that I might have, or when I visit local schools, or uh, when I see the level of homelessness and, and a housing crisis in my local area, that's when I see the level, the task ahead of me and a future Labour government that takes over mm. because things are that bad. Um, in the, you know, we have one of the worst performing hospitals in the country because of a serious lack of investment. Um, our schools are getting cuts up to £400 per student, per individual student. Um, the level of, you know, when I walk home from work every day, the number of rough sleepers that I'm seeing outside the train station in the streets is is um, is skyrocketing. So in terms of the task ahead, I see it as a service to them. And I seriously don't want us to let them down because they deserve better. So in that regard, I think he's been a phenomenally poor MP and the task ahead of us is for us to lift and when I use the term us, I mean all of us in the community, I'm just a name on the ballot, is to lift beyond those 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 difficult circumstances and actually meet some of the challenges of the local community. So that's one lens in which I see, uh, do I know the task ahead of me? The second one is, is the challenge to Boris Johnson in terms of uh, the public discourse, right? Yes, the letterbox comments, um, everything, all the comments, you could write a book on some of the things he said from calling Obama half Kenyan as the president mm. to, you know, the watermelon smiles and all this kind of, all, all this kind of stuff. So in terms of the task ahead, it is an opportunity for us to challenge that, that space that he's in, um, which, which is the, the, that's the opportunity. And that's the, that's where I think it's exciting to talk about, you know, there is a different narrative of politics that's available to us. We don't have to choose between um, the you know right wing and the wrong right wing soft, if you know what I mean. And I thought that was one of the difficulties of our twenty fifteen election was we weren't being brave. We weren't saying no. Hang on, migration is a good thing. Do you know what I mean? Or we are going to pop, uh, to nationalize the railways. All these things that that people thought we weren't brave enough to challenge. Um, then, then that's the opportunity that we have in terms of the public discourse. So uh, I'm more and more aware of the, of the challenge every day. Um, but you know what? Like, honestly, you meet people in the community and on the doorstep, and I speak to people like you at events, and, and you realise that people are looking for a more hopeful, mm. more tolerant, uh, a less divisive brand of politics. Uh, and if I can play a part in bringing that about, yeah. As in, I I appreciate and applaud the 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 hope I guess that you mm -hmm. have for the future, and obviously the fact that you're you're being very hands on in, in taking part in that. But I think that and the, so, so I say that fully recognizing, yeah, we're in a very bad moment. Things yes. are very bad right now. I, I was um, about to paint yeah. a picture of how bad it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, <Sorry>. but <laughs> no, my, my, my issue with, with politics and, and why I think some people are very disenfranchised when it comes to politics, I'm probably not of this ilk, but I'm just mm. kind of painting the picture, is that when you look at the House of Commons, when you look at the House of Lords, it's probably an even worse example. Yeah. It's basically old, fat, white men, um, over 50, over 60, kind of, very much of one very particular middle to upper class yeah. uh, background who have no relatability to the constituents that they represent. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I guess not wanting to get into a whole Brexit debate at all, but Brexit's a great example where you will have places in the country that overwhelmingly voted to leave the EU, mm. but then their MPs are going completely against them because mm. obviously they believe something else. And so whilst I don't, whilst I voted to remain and think that we shouldn't leave the EU, whatever else, but still I feel like our MPs have a responsibility to represent the people they're looking there representing mm -hmm. otherwise what's the point i mean what was amazing about that brexit vote and it talks to you about the 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 distance between westminster and ordinary folks yeah. at home is they were surprised so the level of shock through westminster when that brexit vote happened because everybody was expecting and david cameron called the referendum because he expecting was expecting to consolidate a power. massive majority yeah, you yeah. Know? and i think it, it, it was a, I'm not, forget about all the arguments and issues of Brexit itself, yeah. but it was a it was a unique perspective into just how far away Westminster is and these MPs are mm. from what's actually going on in the ground and some of the real, real concerns. Um, and so I think you're very, very right in that some of the disenfranchisement of politics, of, of you know, residents and communities with politics yeah. is because they don't see the, it's the House of Commons, but it's anything but co common. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay. it's, uh, I watch Prime Minister's Question Time and it's a theatre and it's it's ludicrous and the shouting and all that. It just, as a spectacle, it's mm. it's it's not representative of people's lives. So why would they switch that on and think that their issues are being represented there? And one of the things that I say to, 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 to members of the community, and it's not even a campaigning tactic, is if I was to fall sick tomorrow at home, I would end up in the same hospital as all the residents in Uxbridge and South Rice you know, when I talk about schools in the area, because I went to the same school, I went to Brunel University in the in the constituency. Uh, when I talk about public services and the funding of transport and all that kind of stuff and housing, it's because I live there and I, you know, I'm I'm as a part of that community as anyone else is, and therefore my success is interlinked with the success of everyone else. Yeah. Um, and so, I think in order for us to provide this hopeful different brand of politics and move society beyond the very, very difficult moment we're in. We need a sweep of different MPs in that from, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking which party right now, mm. but the number of young people in that parliament is, I mean, everyone loves, loves to talk about the Muslim immigrant thing, but very few people talk about the fact that I'm 24 years old and running for parliament. Which 24? Of, yeah, which is one of the youngest, one of the youngest, I feel about 34, but I'm one of the youngest candidates standing around the country. Young, young people as a whole, yeah. you know, they're always told to engage in politics, but if you don't look, if you don't see people yeah, who look yeah. like you, it's very, very difficult to engage. And I'm not advocating identity politics, but it, it is, it, you know, the number of young of folks. Course, yeah. I mean, I went to a, I went to a Labour Party candidates away day and I walked into the room and I was probably 20 years the junior of most people there. And that's the Labour Party, which is the more diverse, mm. more broad, um, Group and so so we have to do better, but the country has to do better. So the number of young folk, the number of BME communities represented, um, the number of women needs to go. And unless there is, and I'm talking a serious radical change in how how the House of Commons looks and the yeah. experiences that walks in, because it's no surprise that these that they're distant and they don't understand the issues that people outside this room will feel because they've never seen it. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the funny story I always tell is. When I went to university, <clears throat> I, uh, I started living with um, a bunch of people who were, uh, let's say, middle class, upper middle class, right? And I remember them having a conversation about owning horses. And genuinely, bro, 
the only horses that I saw were the police horses in the London riots in 2011. That's the only horses my, our people knew, right? These are different. We live in different worlds. Yeah. And unless our world is represented in the House of Commons, and this is the same thing as it's just going to repeat itself. Um, so there needs to be a radical shift. And hopefully, I mean, you've seen it in America with <coughs> Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and, um, and Rashid Ilhan. Yeah. You know, if, if myself and not just me, but other parliamentary candidates and coming MPs yeah. can help create that environment that encourages more young people, more diverse groups to get into the House of Commons, mm. then that, that that will radically change the country. And just the House, House of Lords, you've got to scrap the whole thing and make it elected. But you're not going to fix that as long as it's this hereditary uh, nonsense. But uh, okay, which is so where I think we should be brave, by the way. I think we should be saying we're going to scrap the House of Lords and replace it with an elected chamber. I, yeah, I would say uh, worry about getting into yes, get, get into final event, then, then we can start. Um, <laughs> we'll work on that. Uh, one step at a time. <laughs> no, so I, I also, I, I mean, politics is an interesting one as as a as a career choice or a, part, a life choice mm. that you make. Um, what was it for you? And I, I'm not looking for the kind of political answer of oh, I saw so much so many issues on the streets and yeah. the hospitals. But like, as an individual, as Ali, like, what moment in your life did you decide that actually, you know what, I need to get involved? Because you've been, you're the uh, vice president of NUS, yeah. so obviously the kind of getting involved in, in civic society is, is almost runs in your blood by now. Yeah. But what, what triggered it? Like, at, at what point in your life did you realize that this is what I want to do? Well, I won't give you the script answer, mostly because I, I suck at sticking to my scripts anyway, which anyone from my team will tell you. Uh, I can remember the moment that it was. Because I had no interest in studying politics, getting into politics, really none whatsoever. Just, I'd always did been you study politics at university? Yeah, but I, don't, but I didn't intend, so I changed my course three weeks before you sent the UCAS application. I was gonna study film and TV. I was all into my film and TV. That's what I wanted to do in my life. Um, and it was the trembling of the tuition fees. I don't know if you remember, there was the whole street protests in, in, in 2010. And, um, it was, it was the 2010 protest, the student protest in 2010 for me that, that changed everything. Because at that point, I, I for the first time became conscious of the distance between policymakers and people like me. It felt like a huge vacuum between us. And I remember the teacher telling me, listen, the bigger that distance, the more beneficial it is for them and the more harm it does to people and communities like ours yeah and so i decided to study politics not intending in any way to become a politician i always you know i always say to people these things happen through circumstance um and through um the blessings of god but the i had no intention of, of getting involved in, and, and things kind of snowballed for me um it was opportunities of going so why don't you stand for this why don't you stand for this but i remember the moment was the 2010 protests, that feeling like it was so far away. And I remember standing in London Bridge and you look around you and there are thousands upon thousands of young people with a demand that isn't radical. Isn't unreasonable. Isn't unreasonable. It's saying my educational journey financially should be the same as yours, Tony Blair, should be the same as yours, Nick Clegg, should be the same as you. They all had education for free. And I remember going home going, there's no way that they're not going to U-turn on this. Did you see how many people were outside? Over 
And then, no, this was me saying it to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, yeah. I remember, the thing is, I'm, I'm um, living this with I mean, you. once we got home, well, after being kept After being kept off, we had to burn our maths books to kind of say, <laughs> genuine story. And it was snowing because it was cold. But once I got home, I was like, bro, there is no way that they're not going to U-turn. Did you just like, look at the amount of people on the street. And then they went through with it. And I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> What's happened here? Um, and the same thing with Iraq. I mean, I was a little bit too young to, to, to I mean, Iraq was that I remember feeling Iraq, yeah, yeah. but I, I, I don't remember. I went to the Million Man March in 2003 or 2004. Two was it two million? Yeah, I think around that. Reported. So, again, I remember being there and, and seeing two million. And like literally you saw it. I remember being in central London, yeah. trying to catch a bus to get there with my family. You might as well get out the bus. We literally walked, got yeah. out the bus and walked. Yeah. And you get there and, and then you see it on the news and you just think there is no way yeah. the government is not going to listen. Yeah. And they didn't. And they didn't. And the reason they didn't was because there's so that that distance, that it, that the analogy of that vacuum between Westminster and people, yeah, is is there by design. It's there. Um, it is what causes that public. And so people like me entering Parliament, I think, and it's not just me. There's lots of us. It only serves to close that gap. Um, and so, it was that anger, that resentment, that really got me involved in politics and then the injection of hope was when I started to meet other people yeah. who inspired me and who I thought were you know and, and I start to see you know that there is a plethora of ideas and there is a plethora of, of energy and passion of people they're just not directing it into the mainstream politics and we absolutely can direct it into the mainstream of politics and we can win the arguments um, and so that's how I ended up in a in an analogy sense getting into politics and i guess following on from that with regards to the with regards to diversity mm. within politics the, the black and minority ethnic uh, community in the uk um I, I think when it comes to looking at those living in in, in poverty and worse off communities there is a, a large proportion of black and minority ethnic live in those circumstances how how do we expect for them to be represented, for, for individuals from those communities mm. to rise up and, and come into mainstream politics and, and walk into the House of Commons, which, as I said, is already like an old boys club. Yeah. Um, how can we realistically and tangibly expect that to happen? Um, i tell you what, how we can't expect it, yeah. and that's through individual stories like mine. That's something I'm very, very aware of. So me standing for politics isn't going to inspire an open... I mean, it might inspire a few people to get more involved, mm. but it's not going to be this gateway door that opens people and comes in. So you're saying there needs to be institutional change? There needs to be institutional change. This, first of all, there's got to be a dismantlement of some of the institutional barriers that are put in place on purpose yeah. to stop those kind of people getting yeah, involved yeah. with some of the racism that, that goes on. I mean, I'll give you an example. And I say this with all the love and affection to the Labour Party. It's my, you know, it's my home, and um, I think it is... Uh, it and its leadership and Jeremy are absolutely going to change the world. But out of 99 or something prospective parliamentary candidates, people like myself, candidates running against things, I think something like six of us are BME uh, out of 99. Yeah. And this is the anti-racist, diverse party. Um, so okay, some, so, of, so some of these institutional barriers yeah. are serious um, things that need to be dismantled in order for you know to be able to get more BME people involved in politics and so you, you okay dismantling uh, the barriers I agree with but 
I've seen, I can't remember where it was, but there was a by-election taking place, I believe, and I, I think it was the Labour Party. This is all very, me drawing on my really bad memory. But there was a circumstance in which a party were only willing to put female candidates um, up for a particular by-election, whatever it was, in the name of affirmative action, diversity, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Now, personally, I don't believe in that. I don't think that we should say that, okay, in Harrow East, there's a by-election, whatever, or, you know, we're putting candidate forward. Let's find five people from a BME background and we'll pick one of them. Yeah. I think that it should be done on merit. No, no, you look, I mean, we, we've been saying this in the student movement for a long time now. It's not, uh, you know, unless you have the transformative politics and worldview and the vision that, that represents BME communities, yeah. your representation means not a whole lot to people. Yeah, yeah. Right? I can name MPs, I won't, but I can name MPs off Tell the top of my head who, who let's, let's, let's talk about the Muslim community given, given the platform that we're on, right? Yeah. I can think of Muslim MPs who I go, you know, I was outraged from, and you know what, I like them. I was outraged after the Christchurch attacks. Why am I saying West Streeting as the first person to speak up, speak up in parliament mm. in a authoritative and passionate way to speak on the issue of violence against Muslims in this country? You know, all these Muslim MPs, where are you? I mean, Asal Khan has done a lot of work in terms of Islamophobia these days, and a lot of praise goes to him. But where where, where are the rest of you been on, on, on this issue, you know? Now, I'm not saying because you're Muslim that this is an issue that should address you, but I, I would expect that if you're talking about this representational thing of, you know, put someone in because they're a woman or put someone in because they're Muslim or Bane, then the, the politics and the, your worldview and your vision for the country is as important as your identity. Now, I happen to think all women shortlists are a good thing only because I see it as um, what are those things you put on bikes, the temporary stabilizers, the stabilizers on the bikes, because the system is so um, disempowering and, uh, and uh, you know, biased towards a certain type of people that you yeah. mentioned that sometimes it needs a jolt to recalibrate the equilibrium of the political system. Mm. Um, and it often works. The number of women MPs in Parliament has has shot up since we've we've had all women shortlists. Um, and I guess what you would say is, you know, there are plenty of women, and I use this because that that exists, or women who could put a diversity of views on the table for members to choose from. But on 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 the issue of of the merit, I want to know what your worldview is and how your how your political view yeah. is going to transform the experience and the lives of people in that community. Um, more so than who you are as an individual. The, the stories matter. I always say politics is a is competing stories in the it, it does matter my yeah. story versus Boris Johnson. That's a public <clears throat> battle, a battle of ideas in the public airways. It's super important, and I, I, I we tr we try and do justice to it and play it positively. Um, but we need people that are going to make some of these institutional changes in order to bring different peoples into the commons. Fair enough. I do actually want to talk about your own personal politics and, and getting yeah. beyond the Muslim immigrant yeah, stuff. Yeah. But before that, I, d I did want to talk about the, the anti-Semitism stuff that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. As I said, one of the times that your, your name has, has come into my... Um, I don't know, just, it's it popped up. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was over uh, anti-Semitic um, 
comments that you're perceived to have made uh, earlier on. Yeah. I think 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 2011, 2012. 2012. I, and, and I guess, like, I, I'm, I'm always of the opinion that, like, whenever you hear something, see something, whatever, you'll, you'll make a judgment on it naturally. It, we're not meant to as Muslims, you know, yeah. got, we're told not to judge people, but you're going to do that. But then I always take up the opportunity when I can to kind of address things with people. So mm-hmm. I, I thought I'd kind of put it to you yeah. to kind of explain because... I've never actually explained it in audio form, which is... Which is Fair enough. Well, there we go. Because, you know, you write stuff and like I always... This is why I hate emails, by the way. There's nothing to do with anything. But I hate emails because you can never get the tone of someone through email. Yeah. You can't, unless you know them from unless before. Unless you know them. Yeah, yeah. Unless I... Know, you know when you text me, if I know you, I know the tone in which you're sending it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but on the anti-Semitism stuff, look, I mean... This was something that came out when I first ran for NUS in 2017. Um, and so what I say is on the comments, on, some, on the anti-Semitism tweets and the comments that, that uh, ranging from 2011, there's, only, there's a couple in 2011 and 2012. The first thing I did was unreservedly apologize for them to the Jewish community. And ever since that day, I've tried to reach out to the Jewish community. So I've gone to... Uh, I attended uh, the a trip to Auschwitz with the Holocaust Memorial Trust and trying to rebuild relationships, but also trying to learn. Um, but one thing I try and do on this anti-Semitism, on the on the question of anti-Semitism, is uh, to be helpful in in explaining the context in which I said stuff, not an excuse, but the context in, yeah. in which I said them. So, like I said, I entered, I kind of entered the frame of politics in twenty ten. Um, as a what 14, 15 year old and we were never trained in any level of anti-racism or anti-fascism or so some of the languages that we used, some of the jokes that we made were inappropriate and wrong and should never be uttered but they were done through ignorance um, and doesn't make them right. I, I still unreservedly apologise for them but I think it's helpful to say that some of these schools, particularly schools like mine, were underfunded and urban and come from these communities, uh, and specifically economically deprived areas. We did, you know, I wasn't chiseled like Boris Johnson was to become an MP. It was never even, mm. I never in my mind, my mum never in her mind imagined that I'd be in the public limelight. So, um, you know, one thing I'm trying to do is to try to say some of these kids in some of these schools uh, need more work in the curriculum that talks about the context of the words you're using, the historical... Uh, and I was unable to articulate my political angst in a yeah, meaningful yeah. way, you know? Like, how many conspiracy theories did we believe? And we used to love George Galloway. Like, do you know what I mean? As a kid, and now he's some nutcase that's, like, supporting Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage but but yeah. <clears throat> we were unable to articulate our political angst yeah. in a meaningful way because we didn't have the tools that Eton and Harrow had. Right. Um, and so in my journey going into mainstream, those comments and that person, that 15 year old, are as a part of me as current modern day Ali. Um, those experiences are as a part of me as modern day Ali. Now, Ali can do two things. Right. He can do what these Change UK lot have done over the last week, which is double down and bury my heels in and go, no, I was absolutely right. Or try and make excuses for them. Or I can recognize that I was wrong. That the comments are, if if they were made about myself, I would be angry about. But then go, okay, but how can I move the conversation into a productive, in making sure no one, no kids, 
from my school don't make those mistakes and people from my background don't make those mistakes. Mm. They understand the history and the context of the words that they're using. Um, <clears throat> and they range from 2011, when I was 16, all the way to before I went to uni or my first year in uni, when they were more lazy, lazy criticisms of the state yeah. of Israel <clears throat> or the government of Israel. Um, I think that that's what's interesting about that, um, and I'm, I, I hope I don't want to get you in any more trouble in, in kind of having mm. this conversation. But I, I feel like um, the Muslim community, I think as a rule, pretty much are pro-Palestinian and have issues with Zionism in the state of Israel. Mm. And what then often tends to happen is that conversations around Israel, if they're poorly worded and poorly structured are perceived as anti-Semitic for whatever reason. Yeah. And they can be anti-Semitic. And, and they can be, but, yeah, don't, I mean, there can be an underlying anti-Semitism that's there. Um, but... So, can, so, can I just... Yeah, yeah, I feel free. I'm really sorry, bro. But, so there's two different things. There's the, the, the underlying anti-Semitism that exists, and then there is anti-Semitic language that's used, not through malice, but through poor education. Yeah. Right? So... Uh, oftentimes, I will have conversations, not, not just in the Muslim community. I don't think the Muslim community is any way disproportionate in the number of anti-Semitism. In fact, yeah, I yeah. think we're more aware of it because of the Islamophobia we face now. But I will talk to people and their criticisms of Israel do become anti-Semitic through ignorance. And that's, what, that's where some of the training that's going on, on, on since some of this stuff came about is really, really important. Now, in other areas, there's some underlying anti-Semitism that needs to be addressed left, right, center, or all, all across. Um, but this is where people need to get better in that you can criticize the actions of Israel as legitimate without veering into anti-Semitism. And that's where there needs to be more, more educational pieces. That's yeah. um, so, and I think we need to move beyond pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli as, as terms. Yeah. I mean, I happen to believe that occupation is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't make, make me any more leaning towards Arabs or Palestinians in that region than anyone else. Mm. Um, I happen to respect international law. So I think some, we need to move beyond the football team. And this is in politics as a whole, right? This, I wear red, you wear blue, I'll chuck something at you, you chuck something at me, and that's how politic, political conversations yeah. are engaged. We need to move way beyond that now because... It's those kind of games that have got us here. Um, and in fact, there are actors, i.e. Boris Johnson, who are playing us off against each other, um, who are doing those kind of politics because it meets their political goals. So people like Boris and Michael Gove and Sajid, they don't use divisive language lazily or without intent. They're doing it to play communities off against each other. They're doing it to play the working class white community against Muslims or immigrants and things mm. like that. These are all intentionally, intentionally done. So, and that, that's where I think we need to move beyond those that kind of language in politics and become a little bit more nuanced is the wrong word. A little bit more um, understanding of the complexity, the complexity of issues. Okay. You talk about people about Brexit, or you remain or you leave. Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's what the government of, asked us, and that's what. Well, was. well look at what look at the state, <laughs> look at the state they're in. Not wanting to get back into Brexit. I think <laughs> the, no the interesting thing... No one doesn't want to get back into Brexit. <laughs> but the last week, uh, we're obviously having this conversation just after the Easter break. The last mm. week has been bliss. Because yeah, the, because the MPs have been out yeah. on holiday doing whatever. 
and there's been no Brexit conversations and there's been no uh, changes that have been the talk of the town for the 24 hours until the next changes come the next day. It's been amazing. And I think... Trouble was we had two years of that after the vote and then suddenly... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. To be fair, yeah. it's going to be an interesting year going forward. But um, I think coming back to just this, this whole conversation around comments that you've made in the past, and not you specifically, but it's happened to others in the past. And, and from a Muslim perspective... There was, uh, I think, Pearl Daisy, um, and Amina Khan is her name, I yeah. think. She was doing a L'Oreal advert. Um, she, she was on a L'Oreal campaign. And then comments that she had made about Gaza or about Israel at the time of the Gaza bombing at some point was, was picked upon from, like, I don't know how many years back. And essentially, she then um, she resigned from the campaign and she apologized for her kind of comments, which... I mean, I'll, I'll, I've, I've spoken about my thoughts on this uh, on another podcast, but what's interesting is that in some regards, people are unwilling to forgive things that you might have said in the past. And I very much liked how you characterized the kind of Ali of the past. And yes, it is a part of you, mm. but still that was a different version of you. So for example, yeah. sorry to, to yeah. not let you interrupt, yeah. but um, when, I write, when I've written stuff and stuff that I've written three, four, five years ago, when I read it now, I can appreciate it as like a third party to that piece. It's I, That's not me anymore. That was me in 2012 writing that mm. piece of content. And I can appreciate it as like a, as a separate person. Mm. And I feel like so long as we're willing to accept, and as, so long as people are willing to own and embrace the mistakes they've made and the, and the things they've said that have been wrong in the past, we need to be able to, to move on. What I find there's is a bit of a double standard is when polit- politicians today, for example, I think it was Michael Gove, who basically unreservedly said he couldn't back Theresa May's deal. And then the next week was like, yep, I'm, I'm behind this 100%. And, and there it goes unchallenged. And it's like, where are your principles in that? I understand racism can't be compared with Brexit politics, yeah. although Brexit politics and racism kind of do go hand yeah. in hand. Yeah. But that's, that's something that I find very interesting that I appreciate that racism needs to be called out, anti-Semitism is a problem, needs to be called out, as with Islamophobia. But there is also scope and opportunity for people to reform and change. Yeah, I, I think this is so. You're right. There is a um, a lack of understanding. But look, I mean, it's disproportionate to to black and brown communities. Like I am much like, for example, you consider I said something when I was sixteen or seventeen and a couple of things when I was 18 in regards to lazy criticism of Israel, right? And I have been, like, the, the press and the media have refused to let that go for a really long time. More recently, it's been, it's been fine because we've kind of pivoted away and people have accepted my apology and moved on considering some of the work I've done as well. But, and then you consider what Boris Johnson has said, some remarkably racist things. And, and how recently? And it's like Teflon just washes right off of him and they refuse to hold him to the same account now there are a couple of things i'll say on this issue and i think it's really important it's not about any singular issue yeah but what we're finding with the with the advent of social media is people are growing up in public yeah right so i say this in like comments that people made in the sixth form common room or the college common room are now being written yeah. and etched in stone and the rest of the life, yeah, and it's right? there. Now, I think what society and the political realm needs to do is people should absolutely answer for their comments, right? And I have written things that I would be shocked by as a, yeah. as a teen, right? But 
what people need to do is, yes, they should answer for things that they said, but if they've answered it and owned responsibility and given you their current worldview, then that political progression should absolutely be accepted. I mean, we've seen everything from the women's, from Phil Neville, who's the, the women's, coach. women's coach, the national yeah. women's coach, who said stuff, all the way to people like me, all the way to things that other people have written in all realms of life, right? So social media has 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 really changed the game in whether you're allowed to pol- politically develop because it's done with the whole world watching you. Mm. Um, that that needs to happen, but also like there just needs to be way more work done for in 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 terms of education for for younger folks. A lot of times it's it's just it's lazy. I mean, I'll give I'll give you the example on issues of how many times at school did we call something gay. Right, not understanding the context and the experiences of people who engage in that, you know, who who, when you engage in that kind of rhetoric, if I was to say something like that now, it would be horrifying, quite right. Yeah. But none of the kids that did it in my school and other schools understood the context of really. What they weren't being homophobic. Yeah, they, they, it wasn't malice. It was yeah, just. Yeah. It was just a lack of education. It was a slur. And if someone asked us, yeah, we probably knew it wasn't right to say, but mm. but we didn't understand the context. Yeah. So, I think the political world is just struggling to, and public life is struggling to to catch up with the advent of growing up in worldview. Yeah, yeah. it will because it has to. But I think the, the thing is, we're probably going to be hit the worst as a generation. Because I remember... we're first. We're, exactly. Yeah. We're, we're the first one. So I remember, I think, 13 was when I got my first Facebook account. Yeah. And and Facebook is amazing in that they give you that nice button that says, see my memories. Yeah. And you just get to see horrific yeah. stuff How that you've you said. need to tell the truth. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, to be honest, you have to delete a couple of them because you're like... And, and oh, absolutely. The other day, my wife was, was reading something that she had said to a friend and she was being... To a Pakistani friend and she was being really racist, mm. but not intentionally. It was as banned but it's yeah. like that you can't do that today uh, but also, you, you you realize that it, yeah. it's wrong but also things not just with what where things are stored but yeah. the, the country the world has moved on from yeah. the kinds of things that i mean what's really funny is do you remember when friends got put on netflix yeah, yeah. oh people and people started re-watching <laughs> friends and going wait a minute here and the Problematic. But the world has moved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I think, uh, so I love The Office. Um, Which one? The American or the British? Well, one? both. But the, the US I've only one, seen the British one. You've only seen the British Yeah, I only recently got into it. Yeah. Okay, you've got, you've got a lot of learning. To yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll have a chat. After. You give me a list of. So, so The Office, the US Office, I think Steve Carell basically said that if they were, to, I think they, they were thinking about bringing it back or doing a remake or, you know, rebooting the series. And he basically said that it, it won't work in today's climate. No. And we're only talking like five or ten years ago is when it when it finished. Yeah. Like it was like a ten season long um yeah. incredible series. But the world has changed that much in such a short amount of time that so many of the things just aren't acceptable and people don't find it funny and like sensitivities have progressed. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell on this because I did want to kind of for the last couple of minutes um just talk about your own politics. Yeah. Uh so what what's important to you beyond so if, if this was a metro interview yeah. we've got through all the immigrant stuff now what are the what are the politics what do you want to talk about what's important and why do you want to get into this so I think actually talking about how the world has changed politics has changed and so I think the centre ground in politics has massively shifted um, I 
it's this interesting because we get called radicals, and I mentioned this in the MEE video. There was no, by the way, there was you know that that Middle East Eye video that was on Twitter that everybody seemed to see. There was no script, genuinely no script. I was speaking off. They were just like just speaking to camera, which I'm always better doing anyway. Yeah. I'm reading the script, but you know, the 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 shift in political conversation is really exciting for me because a lot of the things that I believe in were finally put to the country in 2017, and everybody in the political elite world was saying not going to happen, unelectable where are you going to find the money for it, all that kind of stuff and it's now embraced so th what I believe in for example I principally believe passionately that the healthcare system in this country needs to be saved from the cruel arm of privatisation and lack of investment of the Tories, right? One of the things that I am most proud of this country is the National Health Service, but it's on its knees. I, I genuinely believe we have one general election to save the NHS in terms of the funding that it needs. Um, and so, you know, proper investment into the NHS and, and some of the reversing of um, the, the PFIs and the, the privatisation element. I'm a passionate advocate and have been an activist on the issue of free education from cradle to grave for a long time. You know, before, when people were talking about before people were talking about free tuition fees, myself and other activists were winning the argument in the student movement, the student political realm for free education against graduate tax. So I am fundamentally of the belief that, you know, the National Education Service should be the mirror and the legacy to the what the NHS is. Yeah. Right? So you shouldn't have to pay a penny to go to school, to go back to school, to retrain. Uh, and I think part of how our economy is changing without well, I could go on about this for an entire podcast in itself, but the automation, globalization, and the change in our economy requires a solid educational system, which means that I can go back to school free and supported and retrain once jobs ent exit the market and enter the market. And, and that kind of automation needs to be mirrored in the education system. So the abolition of tuition fees, the so bringing back of maintenance grants, the reintroduction of educational maintenance allowances, all these free school meals, the investment um, of, of into schools. Um, I'm also a little bit radical in that I don't really believe in privately funded education. Uh, I don't quite understand why the education of someone should be contingent on how much money they make or how much what their economic uh, circumstances are. Um, and so whether that would mean a tax on those things or, or what, I mean, they're charities now, which is a little bit strange, but the details of it, I'm talking about my principles are. Um, so on education, there, there, there's a whole lot. The nationalisation stuff, I mean, I remember when nationalisation in the Labour Party was a dirty word. Now it's polling at like 80% can nationalise the railways, the water, um, nationalising water and all these kind of things. And so the crux of it is... You know, my, Boris Johnson would call me far left. And I, again, you know, when I'm talking about the, the way that we talk, this left right wing stuff doesn't make sense to me. I believe in a bunch of things. This is the platform, right? Um, and so I don't care what they're labeled as, because what they're labeled at is to either tell people that they're no good or that they shouldn't vote for them or to try and dissuade people in believing in ideas. I believe in ideas that unlock solutions to the problems of communities, right? So um, I think 
if we can change some of that discussion around, okay, it's not about if you're a Corbynite or you're on the right or you're in the centre, which no one's in, I mean, like, the centre's polling at like 1%, but, uh, you know, it's about what are the solutions to some of these problems. And I don't think that's particularly radical. I don't think free healthcare, I mean, a properly funded NHS is particularly radical. I don't believe that a national education service is particularly a radical idea. I mean, it's a radical idea in the context of where we are, but if you were to look at it objectively, on paper, as yeah. an idea, what's radical about everybody should have the access to, to education, um, and we should have world-class education for everyone. Um, I, think, I think the problem is that people find it, but when we look at examples of countries around the world that have these things, yeah, um, we kind of think, oh, it's great, that really works for them. Like there are, there are examples of gun control laws, I think in Japan, yeah. um, that are like phenomenal, and, and although people can carry guns, but the rate is so low of right. gun crime and blah, 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 whatever else. But the, as you said, the context of where we live in is that the NHS, I personally can only see it going down as things stand. And, and that's why, for example... But, but as, means, as things stand, you mean under the current government? I mean under the current yeah, government, yeah. But I, I, So for me, it's like it needs something radically different. Yeah. If, if Tony Blair was running again mm. with the Labour Party, mm. I can't see it going in a different direction. Mm. I would continue to see it going down, personally. But with Jeremy Corbyn? With Jeremy Corbyn, uh, yeah. anything's possible. <laughs> I mean, the fact, that, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn won in itself, um, I think is, is testament to the fact that anything can happen. It's um, also testament to you know when we spoke earlier about how how distant the political world is. A lot of exactly world. that's that's the thing. So commentators, the establishment, were like this can never happen. Yeah, because then he can't survive the leadership challenge, and he did. Yeah, but uh, they have no idea what's going on on the ground. Like when they when they're talking about the nationalisation, I remember the nationalisation stuff earlier, and you'll remember it. Mm. Like, this guy's this guy's you know loony. What is he talking about <laughs> nationalising the railway? And then you talk to people at the door, and you talk to people in community centres that. And you're like, you know, France has nationalized railway. You know, Germany has nationalized railway. And you know who pays for it? We do. Um, and who owns our railway? So, and then people are like, yeah, of course. Yeah. These, because you're not talking to them in the way that the press does. In the, oh, this is the far left candidate, and this is the centre right candidate. You're talking to people in terms of what are, what are the keys to unlock the problems of mm. your life, um, and. So I'm very optimistic. And the reason I'm optimistic in terms of when you're talking about what my politics are is that the centre ground of British politics is changed. We're in a different... The game has changed completely. We're in a different... Post-Brexit, post-Trump, post-2017. This Anything is possible, right? And let's be honest, people like me, stories like mine, were never meant to become MPs, were never meant to, you know, follow this path, were never meant to enter the House of Commons at 24 years. And I'm not talking about the identity stuff, just in yeah, yeah. in terms of everything. Um, but we are now in a political space where all things are possible. I think, um, to end, we should also acknowledge the fact that we're in a time that England managed to make it to the semi-finals of the World Cup. Maybe we should have won that. I'm no, but, but you know how significant that is? Bro. <laughs> I never thought I'd see the day that people in England were actually happy yeah. to kind of walk around and like, yeah, you know, pat each other on the back just for, for, for Mate, being... On the way to watching the semi-final, <laughs> I was sticking my head out the car singing, <laughs> it's coming home. Well, we still got the nation. We have still have whatever, I, I don't think anyone understands that. But you know what, Ali, uh, thank you very much. This has been, uh, time has just flown. I think it's always been an hour, but I, I've just enjoyed speaking to you about everything, I guess. And... 
I personally, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll cover your story on the Muslim vibe as well, but like I, I, I wish you all the best for the, the elections, if and when they happen. Um, and uh, don't be a stranger. No, well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really, really, you know, this is an amazing platform that you've built. Thank you. And reaching and doing some amazing things. Um, and I'm always, I'm always available. Thank you for everything that you do. And uh, I think it's important to, to, to recognize at the end that everything that I do and everything that we do is through the mercy of Allah and, and um, through, uh, through his guidance. So um, we, we will try and stick to that as close to as we can. And I look forward to seeing this when it comes out. The headline's going to be Muslim Immigrant. <laughs> Muslim Immigrant beats <laughs> Boris Johnson. But no, thank you very much. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, one thing I actually love about the Muslim Vibe podcast is that I met Ali um, a week ago and I, at the event that I met him, I was thinking, oh, we should meet up, go out for coffee. I'd love to talk to him, find out more about what he's doing. But what we kind of, you know, what we did instead was sit down over a podcast and have the same conversation. Um, and, and this podcast has been a great opportunity for me personally to to connect with individuals, to hear people's stories, to just have conversations that I, I, in some cases, have already, sometimes don't, but it's just, it's a, it's a really cool kind of um, platform and, and opportunity, I guess, for, for obviously the listeners, for you guys as well, to, to hear from a, a vast range of individuals doing, you know, different things all around the world. Um, and inshallah, over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to bring you more, I guess, more great content. I, I'm, I'm always tentative about naming names because, you know, things don't happen and blah, 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 whatever. But we're speaking to some incredible people right now about potentially doing podcasts with us. Um, and it's exciting because, again, it's, it's, uh, it's my opportunity to speak to them as well and, and, and discuss either events that have taken place in the past or platforms that people are running and, and just finding out more and I guess um, learning from their experiences so so yeah I, I, with regards to, to um, Ali's uh, political career again he's, he's, he's one of the individuals that's been uh, although he's young he's, he makes me feel old he's I think 24 he mentioned um, but He's almost a seasoned politician by now, just engaging in, in, in politics at every level, from the student movements to now obviously being a parliamentary candidate. Um, and it's, it's hugely exciting. And I think, you know, it, it shows that there is that potential to still be connected to, to our roots and be grounded and, and still be a part of the, the, the Muslim community um, and, and hold the same values that, that we all hold whilst also progressing in the political sphere and climbing through the echelons and whatever else. Um, and, and as Ali, Ali said, that he's not the, um, he's the exception to the rule. Uh, but we need to, to pave ways for people from different backgrounds to, um, and I'm going to use the word infiltrate, but obviously you know what, what, in what way I'm meaning it, but we need, you know, we need to pave the way for people to be able to infiltrate the, the current establishment system and be able to make a positive change because if you look around the table in the House of Commons are they representative of the general British public? Personally, I don't think so. There are minority groups that are not represented. People from lower income backgrounds are often not represented. So it's important and it's crucial in fact that, that people do engage like Ali and, and, and others and, and you know there are 
various individuals at different levels within the political spectrum um, that are doing fantastic work. And I guess a shout out to all of them. I'm not going to name drop anyone specific at the moment. Some of them have been on the podcast. Some we hope to have in the future on the podcast. But um, yeah, I, I guess one um, takeaway point for me is a, a feeling of somewhat hope um, when I, I look at individuals like Ali um, and others um, that I've, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting um, within the political spectrum, that change can come, but it needs people to, to get involved. It needs the right people to get involved and for them to have their head screwed on um, and, and to, I guess, not forget um, where they've come from and, and why they wanted to serve because I, I feel like power... And it's it's not it's not like obviously restricted to British politics or anything in any sense, but power generally corrupts, um, and and the difficulty is is maintaining that um, element of of realness and authenticity um, when when serving and and when being in a position of power. So, yeah, uh, those are my my rambling concluding thoughts on this podcast. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it and yeah, uh, great, great podcast to be honest, lined up. Uh, inshallah, you'll, you'll enjoy them. Um, be sure to subscribe, give us a rating please and a review would be fantastic as well. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.